Hey guys, welcome to episode 17 of the Science Centric Podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with Tony David, a London-based neuropsychiatrist who has seen some tough cases in his time on the job. For 28 years, Tony worked at Maudsley Hospital in South London, where he saw some truly confounding conditions. For example, a patient with both Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia, which is extremely difficult to treat because the medication for each illness makes the other one worse. Then there's the journalist who suffered a brain injury and began thinking his friends and family had been replaced by imposters. Or how about the young woman who appeared to be in a vegetative state, but could suddenly carry on a normal conversation when given electroshock therapy. Tony has captured all of these hard cases and several more in his new book, Into the Abyss, A Neuropsychiatrist Notes on Troubled Minds. The book masterfully weaves together patient stories, the science behind their conditions, and Tony's own struggles teasing apart the biology, psychology, and sociology of mental illness. Tony and I discuss all this and more in the upcoming interview, so stay tuned. But before we dive in, a quick reminder that we need your support to keep this podcast going. You can support us directly by becoming a member on Patreon. Members get benefits like early access to new episodes and their names mentioned in the credits. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. Other non-monetary ways you can share your support are sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review for us on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All right, enough of that. Let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. It's so great to have you here. We're really lucky to have you. I'm sure you're a very busy guy, uh, taking care of patients and teaching and all the, all the things that you do. So thank you very uh, much. No, thank, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So... Um, we, uh, we're, we're going to talk about your, your book, um, but first I wanted to just ask you a little bit about uh, the field that you're in, neuropsychiatry. Um, what, is, what is neuropsychiatry and, and how is it different from psychiatry? Is it, or is there a difference? Or, or maybe, it's, maybe there's just something different in the UK versus the US. So. Um. No, it's it's a fair question, and I think uh, we have the same you have the same thing in in the U.S. Um, and we would say that it is a branch of psychiatry, um, but it is particularly in, interested in the that area where psychiatry and neurology meet. Um, mm-hmm. So it's people who have neurological conditions who also develop psychiatric or mental health problems, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, through brain damage or disease or, or injury, uh, as well as people who present as if they have a neurological condition, but uh, doctors aren't really sure whether they really do, and there's sometimes a little bit of dispute about that. So, uh, so how would you, de- how would you, I mean, uh, what, what would be the difference between psychiatry and and neurology, because when I think of psychiatry, I also think that that probably involves neurology. But is there is there is there a bright line there, or is it um, how how do you distinguish those two things? Um, it's not a it's not a a, a very clear line. There's a, a real gray area. 
um, there are conditions that both neurologists and, and neuropsychiatrists see every day, uh, the same sort of conditions. But we definitely, as psychiatrists, come across, take, take them on in a different way. Uh, we're not so good at physical treatments. Um, we take advice from neurologists and physicians about that. Um, and I think, in a way, the book tries to explain the essence of our approach. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, so that's, that's a good segue. So the book is called um, Into the Abyss. And what what is the abyss? And is it? Uh, I'm assuming, um, and I've read it. Uh, the the abyss of the human mind, as it were. Yeah, it, it's taken from a quotation from Carl Jaspers, who mm. was a psychiatrist and philosopher um, at the turn of the century of the last century, and he really wrote a lot about. Um, you know what? What? What are the? Uh, what's the essence of mental illness, particularly severe mental illness like psychosis? Mm. And he said that although it is incumbent upon us to try and understand the patient, uh, to empathise with them, quite often there's an impenetrable gap. There's an abyss between our view of the world and reality and their view of the world and reality. Um, and he, he said this uh, not in a way to demean or, or to uh, put down the patient's experience, but just in a way his own feelings of inadequacy uh, in trying to understand you know, very complicated and strange and unusual phenomena. But it is kind of a challenge. Yeah, uh, that, that I, I, I try to respond to that you can actually bridge that gap between, as it were, so-called insane and the sane, <laughs> or the people with severe problems and those of us at the moment who are lucky enough not to have them uh, or less of them. You know, there isn't such a difference when you really get down to it and work to try and understand uh, all the influences that bring about the person into your into your office or into the hospital. I mean, I think that's really uh, true on a um, for people that aren't clinicians. That you know, anytime there's like a some kind of school shooting or something like that, we we try to put ourselves in that person's mental space, and we're just and we can't. We're just like, how could this person do something like this? Um, it just seems impossible to to, yes, to, to, and, to and fathom that, that, what's going through that person's mind. And that's often the starting point. And it may be in the end, we don't manage to, to bridge that gap of understanding. Uh, but at least it's worth the effort. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I guess uh, what, what I try to bring out is this isn't just about being empathic and uh, listening uh, to the person's story and life story, although that's an essential component. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research out there into the social science of behavior as well as neuroscience, uh, and we can bring, try and bring all of that together to help us sort of bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's um, what you refer to in the book as the biopsychosocial 
model of medicine, right? Um, right. Which which I'm somewhat familiar with, um, but maybe for the audience, you could just briefly explain what that is and and how it helps you do what you do. Yeah, well, it it is a it's a term that was coined by uh, a physician, an American physician called George Engel, back in the seventies. And I think one of his motivations was to say, look, um, understanding the person's disease is not really enough to be their physician. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet he also wanted to distance himself from um, psychoanalysis and Freudian kind of uh, models that were, were still very dominant uh, at the time, especially in the US. So it was about saying, look, We've got to understand the person's biology and physiology, uh, but we've also got to understand their social context, and we've also got to understand their um, their own understanding, uh, their perceptions, their beliefs, um, and that neither of these has primacy. Uh, it is incumbent upon us to try and bring them all together, um, and uh, you know I think we're still struggling with what exactly that entails because <laughs> in some ways it just sounds like well it's motherhood and apple pie of course yeah uh, all of that's important uh, but actually I think since Engel there's been a number of really quite deep philosophical and scientific explorations of what that actually means mm -hmm. how say to give a simple example how uh, physiological stress or emotional stress can produce changes in the immune system, which then can produce changes uh, in brain connectivity and development, uh, and it can set up a kind of circle uh, that you then see the world in a different way that might mean that you're more susceptible to stress. Yeah. So, you know, it's also about how the body and the mind connect as well. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think you can see that most clearly in like the placebo effects where you know, that's, it's actually a powerful thing where the mind is, is having an effect on the body. But, um, I guess we don't, we yeah. don't, we don't know. Um, I, and you know, I, I think at some point you, in the book, you express some frustration with, with this model in, in that it's sort of, it's, it's hard to understand those connections between the bio, the psycho and the social, um, and it's kind of a, th a theory that, or a model that explains everything and nothing at the same time. I forget exactly how you put that, but it was yeah, something I, like well, that. Th that. That is one of the criticisms, but I, I, I think we've got to stick with it um, and try and see that it does explain, can explain specific things if we get the balance right. If we can, in, in some instance, we, we might need to weight the biological contribution higher than the others. Mm. say where there is a demonstrable brain disease that's sort of changed the person and changed their attitudes and behavior. Um, whereas others, other conditions seem much more a product of culture and prevailing beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, one of the examples is of, um, you know, eating disorders. So clearly uh, appetite uh, is you know, hugely controlled by biological mechanisms. You know, you know, no organisms can survive without taking in energy and so on. Um, and yet, the way people see 
their body and their body shape. Uh, that's so influenced by cultural messages and prevailing um, views of beauty and health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you have it right there, you know, the biology and the social colliding to some extent. So, so in the middle. So, so that would that would suggest that like uh, anorexia might look different in in one country, for example, versus another, based on sort of cultural standards. Yeah. Yes. And and yeah, the way the way it sort of comes about, the differences in prevalence across different cultures. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's a good example of that. Yeah. Um. So, reading your book, I. Um, it, it was first of all, um, I really enjoyed it. It's just a, it's 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 so well written, and I and I love the way that you've kind of woven the science and the the store stories of patients together. Just just artfully done, I would say. Um, yes, and um, but I I I as I was reading this, I sort of drew a comparison between what you do and. Uh, that popular TV show House MD with with Hugh Laurie, um, <laughs> and it seems like um, uh, that you have a similar job and that you sort of get the hard cases, the 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 things that aren't easily solvable. Is that do you think that's a fair characterization of of what you do? Um, to some extent, um. <laughs> or is that or is that just? Sort of what ended up in the book was was the, these difficult cases. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think um, I was working in a in a sort of tertiary service, so that most of the patients that came came to me had seen other, had been through a number of other people, um, and so in that sense, it what they were kind of extra complex cases often. Uh, but yet, still, they seem to exemplify some fairly straightforward, if really knotty, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other thing is, you know, House always got the right answer and proved <laughs> everyone else wrong in the end. Um, I, would it was always as nice and neat as that? Uh, and I, I, I think that's also something that you can't escape from that. In the end, you don't always get the answer. You don't always get it right. Right. Alas, uh, yeah. but that's reality. That's life. Right. As opposed to TV. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there might have been a few episodes where he did get it wrong, and then he'd he'd uh, you know uh, you know devolve into uh, self harm or something because he was so upset about it. <laughs> yeah, let's not take it too far. <laughs> um. So. I, Related to that, what what was the origin of of this book? Like like what what, what were the seeds of of writing it, or or did somebody approach you about writing it? No, um, I I was sort of looking to take a slight change in 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 my career. Uh, anyway, um, taking on a new appointment uh, as with with a more sort of administrative role. So. And so I haven't given up my clinical uh, work, um, but I'm, I, I do less of it now. So it seemed like a good time to take stock uh-huh. uh, of, of some of the really interesting cases that, that I'd seen and uh, hoped I could share. 
I mean, also, I mean, there is, there are now, there is a whole literary genre of, <laughs> of, of cases from various perspectives. Um, but I felt that none of these really convey what it's like uh, to be a psychiatrist, certainly not a neuropsychiatrist. And even though you've got people like Oliver Sacks, who are, who yes. are superb communicators, um, who you know, who one really would aspire to being anywhere near as 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 adept as them as conveying the complexity of the human mind, it, it is very clear that he is still a neurologist, mm -hmm. uh, and that the psychiatrist, even with the same sort of person in front of them would approach things differently and so that was a challenge for me that I wanted to try and rise to yeah and I and I think what makes this genre so interesting is that 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 you have the science you have the sort of um, patient story but then it's also about you and sort of uh, what mm -hmm. you're going through dealing with a, a a case that's very difficult. I think that just makes a really interesting format for, for, for reading. Um, if you didn't have that aspect of it, if you didn't have that, that your own personal sort of reaction to what's happening, then it wouldn't be as interesting. Um, but, uh, but, but there are a number of, uh, cases where, you, you know, I, I could see, uh, or you're communicating that you, you're sort of conflicted, um, about about what to do next. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. So so to try and sort of take the lid off the process, and you know what I say is is just demystify hmm. some of what's going on. Yeah. So even though we don't necessarily understand the complexity of you know human interactions, um, it's not sort of magic. Yeah. Uh, so I think there is a process that's going on there that uh, if, if you sort of stand back, you can try and unravel it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the clinician's individual responses to uh, what's going on in the consultation, that's a sort of, you know, it's been regarded for a while as a sort of good test bed. Mm -hmm. There's evidence there. Um, you've got to be very careful yeah. that you're not, you know, imposing your own problems or, you know, your yeah. own beliefs upon the person. Yeah. But where you feel, you know, listen to that because that can really be quite, um, give you a good direction. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned, um, I mean, I guess you could, you could think of it as your own sort of biopsychosocial, uh, being aware of your own biopsychosocial thing going on. And I think uh, there was, there's one uh, instance you mentioned in the, um, book where you had put your hand on a patient's arm to uh, a young woman to comfort her and yeah. um, she was having trouble communicating and you finally figured out what she was saying she was like get your hand off my arm yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean you can you can definitely get it wrong um, and uh, yeah you've got to be very attentive to uh, those Sort of cues and, and not assume that you know what the patient wants or needs at that particular time. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, talk specifically about um, the uh, a couple of cases in the book. Mm -hmm. um, we won't we won't go through them all because I 
want people to, to read this for themselves. One is this case of um, this young woman named Emma. Um, mm-hmm. So when you first met her, she was in a, what looked like a, a vegetative state, um, yeah. was not responding to, to anything. Um, but, but as you began to treat her, um, you noticed that she was responding to some, some things, which was very strange. Um, so maybe you could just tell, tell us a little bit more about Emma and um, how, you, how you address this patient. Yeah, so this was, I mean, it's, this was a very, very tough and interesting case. I mean, I, I mean all the cases aren't just one person. Um, you know, they're an amalgam of a few people often. Uh-huh. Um, so, but you know, the essence is is is, is all there, and I'm obviously trying to get to a, a truth, but at the same time, you know, preserving anonymity and so on. But but yeah, uh, this this was a very very challenging case, uh, where she had ended up on a unit with people who had had catastrophic brain damage, who were hooked up to all the monitors that were just lying in their beds requiring constant nursing care. Mm-hmm. And she'd ended up there and they weren't really sure what they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might have gone on and on and it was kind of by chance that they said to me, you know, could there be something that's more from a neuropsychiatric point of view going on here? And it did seem that uh, there was. Mm-hmm. As you say, there were just sort of times when she seemed to demonstrate some kind of awareness of her environment or interaction in a way that re- would have required quite high level, high levels of cognitive ability. And then, of course, when you when you get to the the story, the history, as it were, mm-hmm. how the person's ended up there. Then, of course, it, things tend to reveal themselves, and it's not such a um, surprise. And um, just, just, just to back up a bit, yeah, when, when people are in a sort of presenting in a classical vegetative state, mm-hmm. they just don't respond to anything, right? I mean, there, you, you could sounds or or anything so the the fact that she she was having some some of these responses indicated that something was something there was still something going on with her brain that yeah although even people who have definitely had you know catastrophic brain injury from whatever reason there's still reflexes going on um, uh, and so it still can be a little bit of a challenge uh-huh. uh, whether the person there's a you know, a, a, a sort of agent behind all of that. Yeah. And then, as uh, th- there are also conditions that aren't, strictly speaking, vegetative state or prolonged uh, vegetative state, like the so-called locked-in syndrome, mm-hmm. where, again, um, a neurological condition, usually due to a stroke affecting, you know, part of the brain stem, and the person is a all they can do usually is just move their eyes, sometimes just up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it wasn't for that, you would think that they had no responsiveness. But uh, so, you know, what, one's always got to be a little bit wary. 
but the, the level of response here was was even more than that. Uh, well, as much as someone with the locked-in syndrome who such people can have completely full levels of, of, of cognitive ability. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but, but, you know, you would have thought this, this person had very limited, and yet they seemed to react to certain people in certain ways, that there was an inconsistency about their behavior. They sometimes moved and sometimes didn't. Yeah, and, uh, and you, you, I think you mentioned at one point that she smiled in reference to a song or a joke or something. Um, that, that, that's right. I mean, and it's often, um, you know, doctors can come in and they do their stuff and sometimes not, nothing much happens, but it's nurses who are looking after a person mm-hmm. day after day that really things kind of tend to come out uh-huh. through that kind of prolonged contact. And it was really through um, that kind of relationship that had obviously built up between uh, this young woman and, and the, the nursing staff that revealed that there was more going on. Yeah. Um, so, so, and sorry, we didn't mention, uh, and, and you said this, this may be sort of an amalgam of, of several people or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so you've seen this maybe a couple of times. Um, but what, what age are we talking about here? Um, is there a way to talk about that that <laughs> makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's exempt. The, the the case exemplifies the sort of age range where we see this kind of syndrome, and it is sort of late adolescence into early adult life that you tend to find uh-huh. uh, these cases. They're not well described in in the scientific literature. It's a kind of new emerging field, yeah. Um, which has you know that's why it's attracted various different names. But I think. Um, and what is know, the name? What is the name that that it, that it's been given, or, well, or that makes sense? I guess. Well, one one name is um, persistent refusal sy- syndrome, which has come out of the child psychiatry literature. It's not a very good. It's not a very good label, um, but you know that's that's kind of where we started from. Uh huh. So um, and and that's that's where you just sort of re- refuse to to live, right? I mean, you're just kind of going, "Hey, I'm done. Like I'm giving up here." Or is that what that is? Well, it it it's more. It's a little bit more active than that. And if you think of someone who's who's an adolescent who has, and it's not come on very quickly. It's gradually the person is withdrawn and doesn't want anything to do with what's going on around them, eventually takes to their bed, eventually doesn't want to eat maybe, mm-hmm. doesn't want to speak, and so gradually withdraws and withdraws from, from the world and, and may resist if you try and sort of wake them up or engage them or you know, even, even a very positive uh, nurturing way. Uh, they just turn over or, or you know, curl up in a ball. Yeah. Uh, so that's why, that's, that's why the sort of refusal thing came into the terminology. This particular, this case that is described in the book didn't have that kind of active refusal. It was just a sort of passive withdrawal, wasting away, as it were, from human interactions. Yeah, uh, which made it even more sort of troubling 
Right. Um, and but but really, what what underneath it was a sort of clash of ideologies mm-hmm. between the the person's father and some the advice he was getting that this this is something to do with the long-term effects of a virus. It's nothing to do with psychiatry, and there's no cure, so don't even try and do anything. You'll just make it worse. Yeah. Uh, compared to, I think, perhaps a more natural um, approach, which is at least to try and, you know, if you can communicate, let's try, and let's try and get the person going again. Um, so that's what made the case so complicated and difficult. Yeah. And yeah, then you have other tricky. psychiatric conditions that sort of seem to resemble that with the label catatonia, uh-huh. um, which, you know, very interesting but poorly understood condition that is, is, is a good example of something that, you know, perhaps should be considered neurological rather than psychiatric, uh, but um, traditionally is a, seen as a sort of psychiatric condition. Uh, usually because there's a background of psychiatric illness like schizophrenia or depression, uh, where where the, the, the manifestation is in the kind of behavior motor system, which just sort of shuts down. Yeah. So, so that was kind of in the differential diagnosis. So to bring it back to that, that biopsychosocial model, it's something that the way that this patient is behaving is that is something that almost would indicate a biological uh, cause of, of a di- like a brain disease or illness or yeah. trauma. And then, but what's really might be behind it is more of, of the social, so, social psycho thing here going yeah. on where the father's telling the, the patient that, Oh, it couldn't, it, it's something biological. So we're not, we're not even going to work on the, yeah. The psychological don't, don't part of this. Try and speak. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's tricky. Um, so so she finds herself kind of in a no-win situation. Perhaps you know that was yeah. just one way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and yet there's still this idea that it's really it's a brain condition. That's uh, you know there's no choice going on there. It's 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 just a manifestation yeah. of a complicated brain state that we don't really understand so i'm just thinking and 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 this is gets into this idea of of trying to get in the head of somebody who's dealing with mental illness but when not you have if you're refusing food and you're refusing human inter- interaction i mean these are these are needs these are drives that we have i mean it seems like it would take a, a tremendous amount of effort to sort of ignore those yeah. internal drives that we have yeah yeah, absolutely, um, and I think yeah that will surprise people uh, that there are you know it is still possible, mm-hmm. um, and in a way, I think patients who develop these conditions are virtuosos of separating themselves off from their physical drives and their physical needs, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you can perhaps see this in history of you know ascetic saints. Who have denied themselves, you know, contact and food um, for a higher purpose. So, you know, it's not completely out of reach that yeah. that's going on. Yeah, 
but but maybe there is something abnormal in the sense of being able to do that because i i know i I can't even skip one meal or i'm i'm just the worst person in the world so i don't know you know no i i i think probably you have to have been wired up a bit differently right um but yeah i mean as i mentioned eating disorders uh earlier you know quite common but even there you can see the the person who has a certain makeup that they're able to deny themselves sustenance and have a sort of strength of character that's almost impossible to break. In fact, you know, you could say that that, that rigidity that they have mm-hmm. is is the problem, mm-hmm. and it may actually serve them well in some ways. Uh, perfectionism, for example, is 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 a good trait. You know, for for a researcher, that's great to be a perfectionist. But but if it's so, you know, rigid, yeah, it's going to be very. Uh, disadvantageous yeah so so you ended up treating this patient with um electro what's the correct term i i think in the public uh, public call it electroshock therapy but i don't yes electrocranial uh, electroconvulsive therapy electroconvulsive therapy okay it's not much better than electroshock <laughs> therapy really ect ect uh, be, because you know that is a very well established treatment for catatonia or catatonic stupor um, and can be you know miraculously uh, therapeutic and after a lot of deliberation and after everything else sort of less invasive had been tried and failed uh, it was thought that this was worth a try mm-hmm. um, and indeed had an absolutely dramatic effect um, which which said to me that there, whatever else was going on in, in between her and her family and between you know, the medical establishment and uh, other views, there was also something going on that was biochemical mm-hmm. and physiological. Uh, otherwise, how could you really explain the, the, the response? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, could it just be a sort of... Uh, we're talking about this sort of um, asceticism or you know withdrawal it just sort of s- snapped her out of it in in, in some <laughs> general way that, that it was just kind of like whoa like hey yeah well I mean I don't I, know enough about electro um, no um, therapy, but. and but what was interesting it didn't happen after the first trial yeah uh, it took about three or four which is more the pattern you see in people with very severe depression. Mm-hmm. Usually, uh, nothing happens after the first treatment, uh, and you know it's not it's not hard and fast. But you would say, well, if it was just about sort of being woken up in a way, in a very dramatic way, or just even the placebo response, mm-hmm. why why would that wait for three or four mm. uh, treatments? Right. And and in fact. You know, as, as I described, there was a, we, a kind of experiment took place, um, not through our, you know, not through any planning, but um, the, the e, ECT happens under a general general anaesthetic, uh-huh. just for a few minutes, so the person doesn't feel anything, um, and the anesthesiologist who came along that day used a different anaesthetic that. Um, Emma had a an allergic reaction to, 
So she had the anesthetic, but then spiked temperature. And the anesthetist said, no, no, I don't think we should go ahead with the ECT. You better find out what's going on. And that happened twice. And then we figured out, oh, it's probably the change in the anesthetic agent mm. and it's producing an allergic response. So it was like having what the, in an experiment would be called sham ECT. Interesting. You get, you, get the, you get the anesthetic. You don't know what's happened. You wake up. You might have had ECT. You might not have. And in those instances, there was no response. And then when it went back to having the anesthetic followed by the ECT, again, there was. Okay. And, and you know, it was dramatic. She woke up. She spoke. She engaged with, with us, albeit temporarily, yeah. uh, and then spoke about her sort of strange beliefs about what she thought was going on in her body, uh-huh. consistent with what, um, you know, her father believed. So it wasn't coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to, to have those conversations, you know, made such a huge difference to try and understanding what on earth had gone on for those years leading up to this. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the ending. But, <laughs> you know, well, let's. Um, nothing's as simple as, <laughs> as you think it's going to be. Um, I mean, I. I yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, without giving away, giving everything away, I think that, I mean, the the way this was resolved is that you never actually did resolve it. You never did find out really what was going on. Um, no, the, the temporary benefit wasn't sustained. Yeah, basically. yeah. Um, so that's. I mean, I guess one question I have about that is, is how common is this, this sort of thing? Or, or is this, I mean, you, you said that there maybe there's a, a couple patients that, that you've treated that have been like this, but, but do we have any idea of the prevalence of this sort of thing? And also one other question about this, is there, um, does it have any connection to depression, which is sort of this turning away from the world? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think it is very rare for these cases to be as severe. I couldn't really tell you what the prevalence was. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, it's a kind of end state that you can arrive at from different routes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes very severe depression uh, will take you there. Yeah. And sometimes severe psychosis will take you there. A person has is so um, perplexed or um, frightened by their by beliefs of persecution or whatever, and they, their only kind of defense is to completely uh, withdraw from the world. So it might look quite similar, but actually there's something different going on. Uh, and, and then you have these other this other route, uh, which is more like I was saying before, usually younger people, kids, who are in some sort of conflict situation. And that's where there's been a little spike in, in these cases, um, been seen in, in, in uh, immigrant families where um, usually a family has arrived in a safe haven after terrible traumas and escaping war and and disease and disaster, and then 
the authorities are talking about sending them back. And in a way, the child takes on the, the task of saving the family, mm. sacrificing him or herself to save the family. I'm sure it's not conscious, but sure. sort of that's the context that that happens. Um, and you know that's been that's sort of there's been a flurry of those sorts of cases described in the in the literature. So so it does sound like it could be some sort of defensive mechanism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But again, who the, it, it takes a certain person who can actually <laughs> sustain that, and usually there's other things going on, and and maybe they're also depressed. Who wouldn't be? Um, but but that the kind of political situation just hypes everything up. Do you think that in these cases, if there was an earlier intervention, that that would that could change the course of things? I mean, by the time you're seeing patients in this condition, it sounds like they're kind of almost beyond hope. But if there was an earlier intervention, do you think that that would change the? For the sure. End I mean, it's a kind of truism in the whole of medicine that you know get there early and that's bound that's you know I'm bound to think that that would be the case yeah um, and I guess uh, the reason I asked about prevalence was is this anything as a parent like a parent should be looking out for or concerned about are there any warning signs um, that would or is you would it? know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I wouldn't want to add, add that to the list of pa things parents need to worry about. Let's hope you don't have to contend with it. That's uh, fairly rare, uh, it sounds but like. But I think so. ch children deciding not to speak, say at home, uh, used to be called elective mutism or now selective mutism. Sometimes they they'll, they'll just won't say anything to their, their family. Mm -hmm. Even though they, they'll go to school and talk to people at school, or vice versa, go to school but just won't say anything, or won't do anything. But then in another context, they're okay. So you know, it's this isn't a neurological condition, uh, but still can be quite, quite can be quite tough yeah. because obviously the 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 kid is is uh, in a situation they can't just tell you what's going on. Uh, they're enacting it in this way. Yeah. So that isn't so common. Yeah. But and I think schools and child services are quite uh, familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, in all of these cases, it's got to be difficult to treat a patient that doesn't talk because it yeah. seems like self, self report is so yeah. essential to, to what you do. Um, they, so. But usually those cases are short-lived and they you, they tend to be resolved. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, so another case uh, that I that I just thought was really interesting in the book was the case of Patrick. Uh, right. So Patrick was a, um, I think you said he was a sports journalist. Uh, That's right. A very gregarious guy. And he had this severe head injury. Um as a result of a biking accident um, and then he acquired some bizarre symptoms like thinking that his wife was an imposter um, everybody he knew was were, were, had been replaced by these imposters and that uh, he was also he was already possibly dead and living in this kind of shadow realm um, yes. so that just sounds really strange um. <laughs> very very bizarre strange 
Um, um, what I find that you know, sorry, I was just gonna sorry, I was just gonna go say ahead, that the the only thing that I could think of where I would I could relate to that in some way is a feeling of deja vu, where you have a feeling that I've sort of been here before, but it's different. I was mm-hmm. I was trying to think of something that was the, along those lines, like, gosh, this seems so familiar. Did I dream this? But but it's not exactly. It just feels weird. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, a good observation. I think that sort of the deja vu feeling. It is slightly in the same in the same same uh, category. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And usually that's a sort of momentary feeling. Uh, but imagine if it was like that for everything, and you know you didn't sort of blink and then yeah okay that was just a deja vu. But you know, as it were, you're not snapping out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I I think that I and it obviously well we we think we understand a little bit about at least how the brain is constructing moment to moment awareness and somehow mapping it with predicted predictions and previous experience. And when there's a bit of a mismatch, you get something like deja vu mm-hmm. or in, in in this case some of these delusions and that's one of the great things about neuropsychiatry I think is you have something like that that seems so bizarre so, so strange and yet you find somebody described exactly that hundred years ago in Paris and <laughs> think well hang on this can't be just random there's something really going on and and, and that's the case so this is the sort of the Capgras delusion uh-huh. um, of being replaced or being in an alternative world and um, can occur in all sorts of psychiatric disorders, but it does seem as though it's particularly likely to follow a brain injury. So that there has, there is some sort of damage, usually to the temporal lobes. Um, subtle, uh, you know, the person recovers, uh, seems okay, and yet some connections have been disrupted. Um, and it's to do with what gives us our sense of familiarity. So we can see people, we can see a scene, we, we can say that we've seen them before or not, as in deja vu, but there's something usually that we get, this um, physiological sense uh, that, yeah, that's somebody I recognize. You, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a reflex that's happening subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And so the... The conscious recollection or recognition combined with that physiological kick tells us, ah, oh, yeah, I, I recognize that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but without that, you can imagine that it's a very confusing situation. They look familiar, and yet I'm not getting that sense that that's familiar. You know, what's wrong? Maybe it's, of course, you know, it doesn't automatically lead you to say, maybe this is an alternative universe. <laughs> but if you've also got problems with your reasoning and you're likely to entertain different hypotheses without sort of ranking them in, in terms of um, likelihood, you end up alighting on one of those other explanations. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think, believe you said in the book that, um, especially with other people, that it's an emotional 
feeling that we have towards other people and it's like if that's missing then it doesn't feel like that's the the person that that they're supposed to be it's like why isn't that something inside is saying why isn't that provoking that emotional response (laughs) to this person so this may not this must not be the right person that's such a that's such a weird way of looking at it i think like we we think oh well as long as that person has those features and yeah we recognize them that that but it, there's this emotional component that, that we're not even really aware of that's yeah. happening. And, 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 and there's quite a lot of debate in the scientific literature about how that you need, you know, you need more than one hit. I think we can identify with this feeling of unfamiliarity, um, but going that, making that extra leap to seeing, well, person's a, a replacement or we're in an alternative universe it seems that you need a second hit to be able to generate those sorts of ideas and, and treat them as plausible mm-hmm. and you know that's probably is what's going on you've got to have a sort of reasoning problem as well as this fundamental mm-hmm. familiarity problem uh, but again I think when you think of it from the biopsychosocial this, this idea of alternates doppelgangers of uh, different universes that's quite it is quite a pervasive idea in the culture there's been lots of books and films about that so it's not like it's come from nowhere (laughs) Um, and you know so that and I guess those stories are appealing because you know we are sort of inclined to engage with them right yeah, Invasion of the Pod People or, or one of those yeah. <laughs> types of movies. And at least while you're in that cinema, you believe it. <laughs> well, they're so, so unsettling, think- too, those types of stories. Like, they really yeah. are. Um, so um, so you, you mentioned the um, that uh, in the book that this, this imposter syndrome and this also feeling like the um, that you're already dead and sort yeah. of inhabiting the shadow world are, 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 might actually be kind of the same thing. It's like flip uh, two sides of the same coin. How, yeah. How, could you explain how that how that works? Yeah. So so again, the, these two conditions: the Capgras delusion, and then the, the 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 idea that you're dead somehow already in a living death. That uh, this uh, French physician Jules Cotard described so it's been called called the cotard delusion so having both the cotard and the capgras delusion uh, seems like you know an impossible chance and yet again the literature says you know what the, these two things do tend to can coincide uh-huh. and and so the idea is that you start off with this problem with feeling familiarity but if your mindset is tuned to seeing threat in the outside world and sort of putting problems out there, your interpretation, your attempt to make sense of this is that the world has changed, that they're trying to play tricks on me, that they've done something uh, to the world. But if your mindset is more like that of a very demoralized, depressed person who's going to always say, whatever's going on, it's down to me, then their ex- the explanation they'll come to is, well, I must be dead. Uh-huh. How else can I explain this? Uh-huh. Um, so, 
the, the basic problem is there, but the interpretation is colored by are you sort of in a paranoid state or are you in a depressive state? Ah, okay. And, and so that's what, the, what leads you to those different co conclusions, both, you know, highly erroneous, uh, but at least we can sort of start to understand and make sense of them. So w in this case of this pa patient, Patrick, did, was, he, yep. was he kind of flipping back and forth between these two states? Exactly. exactly. Uh -huh. He was flipping back from one to another. There were times when he was, he was very low and demoralized. And after all, you know, he had this terrible accident. It ruined his career. It was affecting his marriage. But then other times he would be more querulous and think that people were trying to do this to him. So he would flip back and, back and forth. But he had enough uh, intelligence and real motivation to try and understand that. That when you put that to him, he was able to put that to work and sort of step back yeah. and uh, ask himself, now hang on, am I, am I jumping to the wrong conclusion here? Yeah. So he... He actually found that very helpful. We were able to get him to a much better place. And that was that was using what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Which yeah. is which is sort of having people reinterpret or reframe their experiences or their impression of something. Yes. So to to be to be their own psychologist, mm -hmm. uh, but not to. Not so much, well, let's go back to your childhood and try and figure out why you believe these things. Let's look at the mechanics, the sort of information processing that you're doing, um, and let's test that out a little bit. Let's question some of the steps that you're taking. So it's, it's a different approach. It still needs trust. It still needs talking and working together. So it's still def definitely a therapy. Yeah. But it's it's using different building blocks. And then that's something you can take with you to other situations, which is seems like really useful for the patient. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, very much so. It's a, it's a toolkit. Cool. Um, so I'm just trying to think. We're, we're at about noon. We're a little past noon here. Um, I think... I had a couple other questions, but they were kind of more general. Um, mm -hmm. But I was just curious on your take. Um, I don't have you have you worked in the U.S. at all? I I didn't, wasn't sure about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just I was just curious on your take if you think that um, you know the U.S. versus the U.K. is is one mm -hmm. better at treating some of these mental health issues than the other um, in terms of the NHS. And um, I know a lot of, there's a lot of um, concern in the U.S. about mental health and a lot of mental health going untreated. And, you know, we have issue with people being like uninsured. Have you seen a difference having worked in the U.S. versus the U.K. in terms of, of how we deal with mental health? Well, um I mean, I, I, I go to the U.S. quite a lot. I, I worked there when I was um, when I was a, a more junior person, and so I wouldn't want to rely too much on, on my experience. Uh, but it does seem to me, it seemed to me then, I don't, I don't know whether it is still true, that um, the state system in the U.S. was pretty good 
mm-hmm. looking after people with severe and chronic mental illness like schizophrenia. Uh, but people who had slightly more unusual conditions, who were a little bit more functioning, perhaps functioning enough not to qualify to be in a state hospital, and yet not functioning well enough to have really paid insurance and have built up, uh, you know, uh, a nest egg to, to pay for their treatment. So I, I did think that for many people it wasn't really bad. Um, and in the UK, it's not that different. Again, our state system uh, does prioritize the more severely mentally ill and is pretty good at that. Um, but it is lacks flexibility sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who are sort of a bit unusual, they don't fit into the usual categories. Um, or, you know, they're, they're what you might call the walking wounded. Um, they, they're, they're not, they don't have a problem about not having insurance. Uh, the national health system will take care of them, but they may have to join quite a long line before uh, they get. Gotcha. Um, but, but I think both systems, neither system invests enough in mental health in comparison to physical health, and that's for sure. Uh, even though in the U.S. the total amount of money that's spent on on health is much higher than it is in the U.K., the disparity is still there. I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, this patient, for example, Emma, who was, you know, required basically around the clock care. Um, I mean, that that sounds very expensive. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm just I, I was thinking, you know, would a patient like that, how, how they would fare in, um, you know, the UK versus the US or I, I you know, I'm, I, I don't know enough about the US system, honestly, to know. Um, how a patient like that would be treated, um, especially without, as you know, as you say in the book, her, her father had passed away, and so. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know what would happen in, in the in the U.S. Someone like that, um, yeah, they would either fall on the burden of any other family members, or um, find themselves in a nursing home of some mm-hmm. sort where they weren't particularly specialized in that kind of condition, but, you know, they would at least look after the person and keep them alive. Right. I suspect something similar would happen in the U.S. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's not end on that note, because <laughs> that's not very positive. <laughs> um, let me think. Is there anything that, that um, I, I think we talked about a lot of what's in the book uh hopefully didn't give away too much um but is there anything we didn't talk about that you think uh would be important or that you wanted to 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 share well i i I think the um you know this interface between neurology and psychiatry i think it's a real growing area it's a growth area um and both in terms of you know really great research coming out as well as uh, people drawn to want to work there uh, and again it's happening both in the US and in the UK uh, and I would sort of commend it to people who have a clinical interest to get get into that 
uh, it's really where the mind and the brain sort of have to figure out who's in charge, if you like. Um, it's a fascinating area. Um, and I think there's going to be some big breakthroughs in, in the next decade about really who, that are going to end up helping us understand uh, who we are. Do you, do you know, do you have a sense of where those might come from? Is it going to come from like, you know, fMRI, you know, magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging and, and that sort of thing or, or better or medication or, or where, where do you think that's going to stem from? Well, I think I think the uh, neuroimaging advances in neuroimaging has is is I mean it's already made a huge impact in terms of understanding uh, mind and brain, but functional MRI surprisingly hasn't had a big impact on clinical psychiatry. Um, but I think that's probably around the corner as as it becomes more widespread, more. Um, easier to use, you know, the software becomes much easier. I think we will start using it as a clinical diagnostic tool. But but I think really the breakthroughs are going to come from the kind of things we were talking about, understanding psychiatric conditions in terms of their cognitive building blocks, breaking it down into, you know, what's happening in terms of perception and memory and judgment. And then we're going to have that's going to open up new kinds of therapies. So I think that's that that kind of cognitive neuroscience. Uh, I think that's where the real advances are going to come from. Cool. All right. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. Um, okay. Um, aside from your book, um, which is coming out, I think uh, in March. Um, when where else can uh, people find you are you are you doing all the the social media stuff well it's a it's a new adventure for me I, I, the, the book is published in the UK in on February 6th but I'm not sure about in the US okay um, yeah I, I'm, I'm on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah I, I, and I, I still do academic writing and work. Um, so I'm not sure, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of bracing myself for what's going to happen when the book comes out. It'll probably just disappear without trace. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. I so, doubt it. But, but I don't know. It's going to be an adventure. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Tony. It's been a great conversation. And uh, thanks again. Really appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. It's been, it's been really nice talking to you. Well, we find ourselves at the end of another episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson. Mm-hmm.